Oh, welcome to the Opium Den. I'm Daniel Williams. Well, it's another Thursday night, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in and uh, helping me out on tonight's show. I usually start off with a weather report, but I can tell you right now that they're going to start sounding uh, pretty similar and pretty much the same. We are now uh, entering our season down here, as it's called, when we finally get rid of the mosquitoes, but end up being swarmed by snowbirds from up north. But it was a beautiful day today. It was a beautiful day yesterday, and it will probably be a beautiful day tomorrow. Uh, We have high 70s and low 80s in the daytime, and it gets down to the low 60s at night. And it's still uh, in those cooler temperatures when my wife and I get up every morning and take our walk around our, our community. So the weather is beautiful. I wish you were here to steal a few, steal a phrase from Jimmy Buffett. But uh, I got some ants in my water glass. Excuse me. <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's gorgeous down here and it will continue to be so. And I only have sympathies for everybody up north as the winter bears down on you up there and it continues to be beautiful and gorgeous down here. Also, as a, as a sidebar to the weather report, I always talk about our sweet little 11-year-old chocolate lab, Bahama. But as many of you know, uh, my friends in Facebook and the like, know that Bahama had an ear hematoma, which is basically an, uh, a sack that develops somewhere in the body. And in Bahama's case, it was in her right ear where it fills up with blood and other other fluids and uh, needs to be drained. And we had, uh, Bahama had a hematoma and we had it drained uh, last week, but that didn't seem to uh, fix the problem. In fact, it uh, came back uh, very quickly and then a little bit larger. Her right ear felt like a, like a tight balloon. So we knew she was in uh, some discomfort and that we needed to take care of the situation. So this morning, uh, I took Bahama up to our, our friendly vet and left her for her surgery. And I'll tell you what, it it broke my heart when I walked out of that vet's office because I could see Bahama behind the door, uh, in the operating room, look at me like, Hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Don't, Don't you, don't you leave without my ass. And she just had that pitiful forlorn look on her face and kind of broke my heart a little bit but good news um the surgery went well and uh bahamas home and and resting uh, very comfortably on the residue of her anesthesia today and uh she's got a drain you know, they placed a drain in her right ear that they'll be um they'll be taking out next monday and uh her ears got her ears got more stitches than a catcher's mitt. And a uh, close look on it, it's not the prettiest thing in the world, but they had to suture a lot of the uh, the ear to, together so that the, the fluids wouldn't uh, wouldn't seep in. 
So Bahama is doing well, and uh, I want to thank everybody for their well wishes and karma that they threw Bahama's way today. It was it was gratifying to me, and I'm sure that it it helped uh, contribute to the positive outcome of of Sweet Bahama. So that uh, that trauma is is past, and uh, we're feeling pretty good about. Bahamas future there as as it relates to future hematomas. So uh, tonight's show, we're going to talk about a couple of different uh, subjects. First, we're going to uh, discuss what the the Obama Department of Justice uh, is up to. Uh, We've talked about Uh, Senator Jim Webb's National Criminal Justice Commission Act of 2009 on how they were going to do a uh, top-down review of our criminal justice system, specifically as it applied to drug prohibition and drug policies. But as we've seen, as we've watched the uh, Webb Commission Act uh, move forward, it continues to get stripped of some of its more important or prob- probably most important uh, portions, where it's uh, now virtually a, a toothless commission. They have it's been decided and, and altered to the point where there can be no recommendations about de- decriminalization or anything of that nature, and that this uh, so-called review of our criminal justice system has been watered down uh, significantly. Now, I've spoken to a few people in drug policy reform who are still bedazzled by the pixie dust from the Obama administration, and they don't seem to think that this is such a bad idea. Well, <clears throat> this is what I'm going to talk about is a bad idea. Um, the Department of Justice's uh, National Institute of Justice and the Bureau of Justice Assistance Uh, As we speak, they are gathered in Los Angeles uh, to discuss whether uh, to implement predictive policies, is what they're calling them, predictive policies on on crime. And uh, it's rather eerily uh, reminiscent of that movie Minority Report. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw that, but it was it was a so-so movie um, starring Tom Cruise. And the premise the premise of the movie was that uh, there were these certain uh, precognitive individuals who uh, who looked you know creepily beautiful that laid around all day in some type of of pool of liquid with electrodes and numerous other devices attached to their body and where they would go into a precognitive mindset and they could see crime before it actually was committed. And this would allow the police department to be preemptive in uh, arresting the individual um, before the crime was committed. But the, uh, the movie, uh, the title of the movie Minority Report uh, dealt with the fact that uh, this this program really was not as effective as they uh, thought it would be, and the minority report was 
the findings that were outside of the uh, majority thinking that this particular policy would work. Like I said, it was a it was a so-so movie, and only in Hollywood. But uh, that's not exactly true, because as I mentioned, the Department of Justice is now out in Los Angeles conducting a conference or a symposium on how to implement certain uh, predictive policies. They're not calling them precognitive because <laughs> even for the Department of Justice, that's, that's too fucking creepy. But they're calling them uh, predictive policies um, where the police departments will use uh, various data and other patterns of behavior to, uh, to determine where crimes are most likely to occur and uh, do their best to preempt uh, these crimes. <clears throat> which, which I think is a, you know, a pretty screwy idea, but what it has done is turned the conventional wisdom on its head that art imitates life. Now we have, with the Department of Justice idea here, um, life is imitating art. And what they have done, uh, the federal government has already uh, set up uh, a number of trials for these predictive policies, and they've granted just uh, $1 million, a little over $1 million so far. But you know, <laughs> you just know in your little scared heart that $1 million is just uh, a drop in the bucket to what they will pour into these uh, predictive policies once these test trials have been completed and you just know in your heart that these tests will be considered successful and this will be uh, implemented on a, on a much broader stage across the country. Right now, uh, the field tests are going to be uh, in the Los Angeles Police Department, uh, the D.C. Metro Police, uh, the Chicago Police Department, uh, the city of Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, the city of Boston, uh, the Maryland State Police, and the New York City Police Department. These areas are where the uh, tests will be conductive, conducted to see if these predictive policies uh, warrant further funding and a more broad uh, implementation uh, across the U.S. Um, if you're listening and uh, you want to have a con you want to make a comment on this, uh, please give us a call. We'd love to put you on the show. Uh, the number is 727-493-2205. And uh, if you're a Skype type of person, uh, you can call me on Skype. My Skype ID is the new libertarian. That's the new libertarian. Or the direct line in is 727 493 2205. Please give us a call. We'd love to put you on the air and hear what you have to say about these, uh, about this particular Minority Report sequel. Now, right now, um, like I said, it's going on in Los Angeles. Uh, the main cheerleader uh, for this new predictive policy is none other than former LA LAPD uh, Police Chief uh, William Bratton. Uh, he's just retired uh, from uh, the L.A. Police Department, and he has been heralded as uh, a great guy for 
law enforcement. And he believes that these predictive policies are the future of police work. And interestingly enough, um, he was the keynote speaker, but more interesting is the fact that the Assistant Attorney General, uh, Lori Robinson, um, attended this little symposium, and she was the one who introduced uh, Chief, former Chief Bratton um, at the uh, banquet when he gave the keynote uh, speech. Um, the uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, when you look past all the fancy rhetoric uh, of this particular uh, uh, press release on how they were going to uh, work this, once you get past all the uh, all the fancy rhetoric, in the final analysis, it really just gives uh, just gives cops uh, more power, more powers to stop and. Uh, question and, and arrest citizens for uh, just maybe looking suspicious or being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but good people nonetheless. I think that um, this is a, this is a, a, tra a travesty uh, of, of justice. It's uh, it's fundamentally unconstitutional, but it appears that uh, President Obama at least endorses the, uh, the concept or there wouldn't be these uh, trials going on across the country. Um, should, uh, should President Obama, upon uh, the completion of these tests, and like I said, you just know they're going to be deemed successful, should President Obama enact, enact these type of predictive uh, policies uh, around the United States not only will it be a, a just another slap in the face to all uh, our drug policy reform leaders, it will be a, a travesty of justice. You know, for for a man who taught constitutional law in college to even remotely believe that this type of program would uh, would pass muster. Uh, with our founding fathers, uh, just boggles the mind. I, I believe that uh, President Obama should go back to school, but not as a professor, but as a student, and sit in on some constitutional law courses and uh, kind of <clears throat> get a refresher on how our Constitution works, because he certainly doesn't seem to remember the purpose of the Constitution and continues to usurp it. Uh, not only is this uh, Minority Report uh, sequel uh, unconstitutional, but he is uh, running into some difficulties with his health care plan. I know that Senator Reid just unveiled it and it is a boondoggle, and even though the CBO, they're touting the CBO as uh, supporting this uh, health care plan, uh, when you look in, when you look deeper into the CBO report, you find it full of what ifs and probably nots and hard to tell and things of that nature. So they're hedging their bets, but that doesn't seem to stop Harry Reid and his acolytes in the Senate and uh, in the House from uh, hailing this bill as uh, saving not only uh, Medicare but 
uh, bring it into the healthcare system, uh, tens of millions of new individuals. And I'm going to divert it just a bit here and, and, and stay on that subject <clears throat> because when people uh, when people hear that you know 40 million Americans don't have health care, uh, they imme- they immediately uh, surmise or believe that not having health care is the same thing as not having uh, health uh, coverage. And uh, that's just not true. Uh, the majority, many of the people, I won't say the vast majority, but the majority of people without health care insurance get health care. They get it uh, primarily uh, at hospital emergency rooms where it is law that you cannot turn anyone away <clears throat> from the emergency room uh, if they don't have insurance. So the majority of these uninsured people are, in fact, getting health care. Now, granted, they're getting it uh, at emergency rooms, at the hospitals, where uh, the majority of their cases are, are not emergencies. But when their child gets sick or whatever, they'll take them to the emergency room knowing full well that they will be cared for. So let's... let's, dis- let's uh, dispense with the idea that the lack of health insurance uh, equates to the lack of health care because the care is is being provided and provided to the majority of those without uh, health insurance. So what we have is a system that, uh, you know, if we make the numbers easy, let's say it costs one, cost $1 billion a year to provide all of this health care to the people in the United States. And since the majority of them are getting it, but uh, a significant number are getting it at inefficient and high prices, that $1 billion uh, should be enough, I mean, it is enough to take care of everybody now. What the, what the government, if they're going to get involved in this business at all, which I think is, is, is a bad idea, what the government should do is look at the system, and since, since there are inefficient and expensive parts of it, fix those parts. And then that $1 billion that we're spending to give everybody health care, that number should reduce. And uh, without, without, uh, without anyone not getting health care, in fact, they'll get health care and they'll get better health care. So the, the system can be corrected without incurring additional costs. It just makes sense. If you're getting everything done for a high price and it's inefficient, you fix those inefficiencies, you'll get the same result for a, uh, for a lesser cost. But anyway, that was like a, a, a small tangent, but the idea that the government can force you to buy a product that you may or may not need, you may or may not want, and at a price that you have no, uh, no role in determining, that uh, that itself is unconstitutional. I would like President Obama or Harry Reid or or that uh, freakily strange Nancy Pelosi to uh, look in the Constitution and see where it says the government can't force its citizens to uh, buy something that they don't want and pay a price that they have no control over. But anyway, <clears throat> President Obama uh, is uh, is not uh, is not, in my opinion, uh, 
following the Constitution in, uh, across the board in a lot of these policies, specifically in our area of, of expertise and desire in uh, drug policy reform. Now, I, I know that uh, he took the DEA dogs off the hunt in California and the other states that have medical marijuana laws, but that is only uh, uh, an affirmation of uh, states' rights and the decisions made uh, by their by their citizens. Um, sorry, there I had a, had a little quick email come in. Um, so call me up and tell me what you think about uh, this new minority report, uh, predictive policies of the Department of Justice. Now here we have uh, again the number seven two seven four nine three. 2205, or if you're a Skyper, uh, Skype me. My Skype ID is the new libertarian. Now, what is it? I mentioned Webb's uh, National Criminal Justice uh, Commission Act, and now we have this new minority report, both coming out of the Department of, uh, of Justice, or both affecting the Department of Justice. Now, Webb's, uh, Webb's plan was common sense, uh, would have been good policy. And yet, it's been uh, it's been beat up enough that it's uh, become taken all it's taken all the teeth out of it, and probably will still go nowhere. So you have that particular uh, policy or initiative, and uh, you lay alongside that this new minority report, uh, predictive policy crap, and uh, you know you lay them next to each other, and uh, which one do you think is going to have a greater degree of success? Uh, Senator Jim Webb's uh, revamping the criminal justice system or the Department of Justice minority report to jack up the already abusive and restrictive powers of the uh, of the police state. So uh, <clears throat> I'm betting <laughs> I'm betting that uh, Webb will get fucked and the minority report will be coming to uh, coming to a city near you very soon. So that just uh, goes to show how how things are going um, in Obama's Justice Department. It's, uh, it is obscene, um, it is wrong, and uh, day after day it, it appears that President Obama is completely and utterly out of touch with the wishes and desires of the American public. His, his, persona, his personal ratings, you know, his favorability ratings still remain high. I mean, I think he's a nice guy. I, mean, I don't know if I'd want to sit down and, and uh, have a beer with him because I don't drink, but knowing that President Obama has enjoyed the cannabis in the past, uh, I wouldn't mind sitting down and smoking a joint with him. But that doesn't mean I want him to be my president and determine how determine the course of, of American history for uh, generations to come. I think in, in that regard, uh, his policies are, are dangerous to our republic and will continue to burden uh, my son and uh, his children and uh, all of those in similar predicaments uh, for years to come. If you are a young uh, listener to the Opium Den, and, and my feedback uh, shows that the majority of my listeners are young, uh, you, uh, 
you guys ought to be scared shitless. Uh, scared shitless not only for your personal well-being, but for your financial well-being. Because we are going to lay all of these costs for health care, minority reports, drug prohibition, every punitive and restrictive policy that impinges upon our freedom as citizens of this great republic, you are going to pay for it all. I'm not. I'm 59 years old. Um, I'm going to get my uh, Social Security and my Medicare, and uh, and you guys are going to pay for it. The only thing I'm doing to to lessen the blow, at least personally, to lessen the blow, is that I uh, I try to stay in uh, in very good health. Uh, I walk about five miles a day, uh, six days a week. Um, I go to the gym and pretend to huff and puff and work out with weights. And uh, I don't drink alcohol. So I lead uh, a pretty healthy life. <clears throat> so as far as uh, Medicare is concerned, um, you're not going to have to spend a whole, uh, whole lot of money on me. But unfortunately, and I'm not bragging, but unfortunately... Uh, I'm the exception to the rule, and the rule is that the majority of baby boomers uh, coming into retirement and those of, and those who are currently in, so, in taking Social Security and Medicare, uh, they are not uh, they are not as healthy um, as I am. Now, you know, I could stroke out tomorrow, or you know, some things like that, but. Uh, I think my lights are going to go out pretty quickly at the, like a flick of a switch. I'm not going to lay around and linger and uh, pose uh, the difficult dilemma of, this, of my family deciding <laughs> what to do with the old fuck who's just laying there in bed wearing a name tag a diaper and with no clue what's going on. I expect my lights to go out uh, quickly and uh, and all at once. And my <laughs> my son... <clears throat> My son, Camel Wellington, he, he has told me in, a, in no uncertain terms that, you know, I better go quickly because if I don't, <laughs> I'm going to be one lonely old man. But uh, maybe Missy will take care of me. But uh, the point is, I'm doing my best to to minimize how much uh, financial resources I will consume as I move into my uh, my golden years fuck all these ants doing in my water glass hmm but anyway if you're young you should be scared shitless and if you're not scared shitless you're just not paying attention because the financial burden that you will bear for all of us uh, baby boomers going into retirement along with those who are already there plus funding everything else that Obama's policies are going to uh, put you in the predicament of doing uh, is, is, is a shame. It is an outright scandal, and you are in control of your destiny. Don't let a bunch of old white men and old white women, for the most part, uh, determine how your future is going to go because they're going to be long gone before the shit hits the fan and the only ones who will be standing. Uh, closest to the blade will be all of the uh, all of the young people, young citizens of the United States. So uh, you should be pissed off, and you should be. I mean, I don't know if, if writing letters to your congressman or things like that have 
have a, have a lot of, of uh, merit, not that you shouldn't do them, and I've done it myself on, uh, on many occasions, but the, the greatest, greatest impact that you can have is at the ballot box. And uh, for the millions of young people who came out and voted for President Obama in 2008, I believe that many of you are on the path to disillusionment, um, especially all of those out there who consider drug policy reform to be a major item uh, on your list of, of things to do by, uh, by President Obama. Um, reject him in uh, 2012. Uh, I think 2012 is going to be a, a more of a seminal election than 2008 was. Um, President Obama may have a difficult time uh, getting reelected, and if he stays the, the current course, uh, could be uh, could be pretty pretty uh, pretty difficult. Now, granted, the Republicans uh, are in pretty dire straits uh, today, but um, not as badly as uh, the predictions were when uh, President Obama swept into office uh, in this past November. So, uh, and there's also, I think, a very good possibility that um, President Obama will be challenged by his. Uh, by someone from within the Democratic Party in 2012, uh, probably being uh, challenged for not being uh, liberal enough, just as uh, the Republicans uh, coming into 2012, unless they're conservative enough and get the Sarah Palin seal of approval and the Rush Limbaugh uh, ditto, uh, they could be in, in difficult uh, situations. Which, uh, which leads to the fact that perhaps, just perhaps, uh, the Libertarian Party, which is the largest uh, third party, or it's the third largest party, I shouldn't say it's the largest third party because there's more than that, but it's the third largest party in the United States. And uh, our message of less government and more freedom is becoming uh, more appealing uh, by the day. I think people are finding out that whether they're Democrat or Republican or Independent, in their heart they are small L libertarians, meaning that they believe in less government and more personal freedoms. Now, uh, you know, Glenn Beck, I believe, is playing with less than a full deck, but uh, keeping in mind that even a broken clock tells the correct time twice a day, uh, Glenn Beck may be on to something. Uh, he rants and raves, but uh, the bottom line in his approach is that uh, when you get past all the rhetoric and the weeping and the theatrics, is that uh, the government is becoming far too large, far too intrusive, and that uh, the American people are beginning to take notice of that. So come 2012, it could be a, uh, a fairly interesting election if the Libertarian Party uh, puts, puts forth a candidate that uh, can coalesce some of the anger and the disappointment that uh, people have in the two-party system. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, I'm speaking from a little bit of a bias. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I ran for the uh, presidential nomination uh, in 2008 for the Libertarian Party and 
once Bob Barr entered the race. I dropped out of the presidential run and uh, started running for vice president. In the Libertarian Party, the delegates not only pick the presidential candidate, but they also pick the vice presidential candidate. I know that harkens back to the original days, but I think that does hamper the uh, Libertarian uh, candidate from uh, picking someone who he believes is ideology, ideal, idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> who is ideal, ideologically, there you go. God damn, I should have smoked more pot. Who shares the same ideological bent as the, as the candidate. So, but we'll see. I think uh, 2012 will be a very interesting time for third parties. And if it is, uh, the Libertarian Party will reap uh, the majority of benefit of that benefit in 2012. <clears throat> and I would be, uh, it would be disingenuous of me to say that I have no intentions of uh, joining uh, or running again in, uh, in 2012, but uh, we'll see. There could be uh, better candidates out there who decide to jump on the third party bandwagon, uh, but it will be, it will be very interesting. Uh, now, on the other on the other side of the coin, perhaps Barack Obama will, uh, at least to many people's satisfaction, be uh, do the right thing uh, in his first term, and uh, he could coast to a uh, very formidable uh, re-election. There could be a very formidable candidate and just coast to re-election in 2012 which in actuality would benefit the Libertarian Party because if it is uh, considered a slam dunk election for Barack Obama in 2012, and that's a big if, but should it be considered a slam dunk, that would allow uh, individuals to quote-unquote waste their vote on a third-party candidate, especially in states where the, where the race has already been decided, whether it be uh, in the bag for Obama or in the bag for whomever the Republicans put out. In those particular states where there is no great contest between the two candidates, those are the states where uh, the, libertarians, the libertarian candidate has the greatest opportunity to, uh, to garner that so-called wasted vote. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of political intrigue and and uh, skullduggery and just bullshit smoke and mirrors that, that goes on. But uh, you never know. Come 2012, uh, third parties will, uh, or the Libertarian Party is the third largest party in the United States political system, just may uh, uh, see, the, uh, see the dawning of a new day in American politics where the Libertarian Party can put forth a candidate that can have significant impact, if not actually win the election in 2012. I know that may sound a little uh, far-fetched out there, but uh, there's, some, there's some shit going on out in the electric. People are angry. People are afraid. And when you combine anger and fear, uh, you may end up with... Uh, near anarchy in the streets and when you because when you piss off the middle class all the hard workers who end up taking it in the ass for support for uh, paying for all of these uh, runaway government programs 
when the middle class has decided that they have had enough and that they have nothing left to lose, um, <laughs> it's going to get very interesting. It's getting interesting now, and I don't, uh, I don't anticipate our economy uh, getting uh, much better before uh, 2012 and certainly before the midterms in 2010, where uh, large shifts will more than likely be seen in the, uh, the House of Representatives and to a lesser extent uh, in the Senate. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of like what I think. And uh, I, could be, uh, I could be dead wrong. I smoke a lot of pot, so <laughs> maybe listening to me isn't uh, isn't the wisest uh, choice that you can make. But then again, it just might be uh, it might be uh, worth worthwhile to uh, to watch me as I move down the road here towards 2012. A lot can go on between now and then, but uh, like I said, I got a I got a taste in uh, 2008. I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was great traveling around the country. Uh, to all the, uh, you know, in essence, what our primaries were. They were state uh, libertarian conventions where the candidates went and debated each other and uh, helped determine who was going to be uh, the candidate once we got to the convention uh, out in Denver. So I enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was, it was quite, a, quite fun, actually. <clears throat> to excuse me to travel around the country, I went from north, south, east, and west, and participated in uh, in a number of uh, state uh, debates and contests. And it was uh, it was gratifying to to uh, to meet people that um, who didn't know me from uh, from Adam and had no uh, reason to support me other than uh, what my policies were. And I found that uh, what I had to say uh, resonated with uh, with large numbers of, of libertarians. Uh, why I didn't uh, win the vice presidential nomination uh, is pretty simple. I had it; it was in the bag uh, going into literally into the last day prior to the vote when the uh, the batshit crazy faction of the Libertarian Party, and believe me, they're still there, but Republicans got their batshit crazies as well as the Democrats. But in the uh, literally the last day before the uh, vote, the uh, the batshit crazy wing, the anarchist, realized that uh, Bob Barr was going to just might win the nomination, and they uh, were hell-bent on doing whatever they could to uh, torpedo his candidacy. So what they did, uh, literally at the 11th hour, they changed the rules for the vice presidential contest and uh, suspended all of the prerequisites needed to get floor time and nominating speeches and things of that nature. And uh, I was the only uh, vice presidential candidate. Well, there, was, there were four or five of them, but I was the only one that received uh, more tokens, which was their way of, of pre-voting and uh, you know, qualifying for nominating speeches and, and, and speech time by the candidate. Uh, I acquired uh, 106 of these tokens where only uh, 35 were necessary. And uh, I had as <clears throat> almost as many tokens as the top uh, presidential candidates received. So I was, uh, you know, everybody told me I was a shoe in and, uh, 
it was very exciting and exhilarating until, like I said, at the last moment, literally the last moment, the 11th hour, the, uh, the batshit crazy faction of the Libertarian Party uh, changed the rules and let everybody that was running for president uh, run for vice president. And that's how I went from uh, a lock on the top to, uh, <laughs> to a bottom dweller in less than 24 hours. But the exciting thing about uh, uh, my participation was that even though I uh, was not uh, the eventual candidate, I had I was in a unique position to determine who would be the vice presidential candidate. Um, as I said, you know the delegates vote for both the presidential candidate nominee and the vice presidential nominee. So when it got uh, when they after Bob Barr had already. Uh, secured the nomination and the voting started for the VPs. Uh, Wayne Allen Root, uh, who dropped out of the presidential race to endorse Bob Barr, which put Bob Barr over the top, Bob Barr decided to support uh, Wayne Allen Root for the VP, and he was a pretty popular candidate. But when the first vote uh, came in for VP, um, not, and, and the and, and the uh, I should add the the batshit crazies or the anarchists who wanted to torpedo uh, Bob Barr's uh, presidential bid, they wanted uh, they put into the fray uh, another popular candidate um, who uh, um, <clears throat> was uh, was re was partially responsible for the uh, medical marijuana law in uh, Proposition Two Fifteen in. Uh, Canada in California, so they put uh, they put him up, and uh, they came to me. Steve Covey was his name. Excuse me, Steve Covey. So after the second vote, when neither of them uh, gained the majority, and I had enough votes that whoever I endorsed would actually win on the third vote, uh, both the uh, both camps came and sought me out for support of their candidate, Bob Barr. Guys uh, came and uh, made me an offer, uh, which turned out to be, you know, you know, smoke up my ass. But uh, they made me an offer, and uh, they were positive, and let's let's make this work. And they were very much uh, wanting to run a uh, as a successful campaign as possible. And the Steve Cubby people came to me and said, "Listen, give your support to Steve to Steve Cubby, and we'll make sure to fuck Bob Barr as much as possible." Well, <clears throat> well, I wasn't exactly keen on uh, on giving my support to some to someone who whose intentions were to to sabotage uh, Bob Barr's campaign and by uh, and by association to sabotage the Libertarian Party's attempt to to put forth a, uh, a solid ticket. So, like I said, uh, I was in the position to uh, determine who was going to be the uh, uh, the nominee for vice president. And even though Bob Barr uh, figuratively fucked me in the ass on uh, the promises that he made, I did uh, throw my support behind uh, Wayne Allen Root, and he was successful in winning the third vote and became the, uh, the vice presidential candidate for 2008. And now Wayne, uh, Wayne is out there, and he, he believes that that he'll be the uh, the nominee in um, in 2012, and he could very well uh, could very well end up being the nominee. But um, should I decide to get into the race, and it's looking more and more like I probably will, um, I believe I can give uh, Wayne Allen Root 
um, a pretty good run for his money. But that, uh, but then again, anything can happen. Uh, you know, Gary Johnson, former uh, governor of New Mexico, who is, uh, has always been a proponent of repealing drug prohibition, maybe he'll uh, he'll jump in. But uh, you never know. It will be uh, it will be very interesting in uh, in 2012. So we've come to uh, the uh, the 45 minute mark here in uh, in this episode of the Opium Den. I sure would like somebody out there to take a chance and give me a call. I've, I, I hear from uh, I hear from listeners and say, you know, I I really want to you know I'd like to call in, but I'm not too sure I want to be on the radio, blah, blah, blah. And I can understand that, but, uh, but conquer your fears and give us a call, 727-493-2205, and tell us what you think about drug prohibition, drug policy, any, uh, any, anything that's, uh, that's on your mind, we'd love to hear from you, 727-493-2205, or you can call me on Skype, my Skype ID is the new libertarian. So we're going to talk, uh, you know, our, our popular segment of the, of the Opium Den is our weekly Cops on Drugs segment. And uh, I apologize, the past couple of weeks our programs run, the program ran a little long and I uh, could only put so many nickels into the wave streaming machine for extra time and we're not able to uh, put together our our cops on drugs segment, and believe me, I heard some some feedback on that, and said, uh, "Let's get this back in because we like it." So we've got uh, just a couple uh, cops on drugs to talk about tonight, and we're going to start. Uh, we're going to we're going to head north from uh, from Florida, and we're going to go up to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, up there in Raleigh, a uh, in Wake County. A former jail guard was arrested for uh, selling drugs and providing a weapon to an inmate. Oh, there you go. Here's some drugs and uh, here's a gun to make sure that uh, you know your sales go smooth. So this uh, former Wake County jail guard by the name of Timothy Bullock, I doubt any relation to Sandra Bullock, but the names are spelled the same. Uh, Timothy Bullock, a young a man of 26, he faces six counts each of selling or delivering marijuana, conspiring to sell or deliver marijuana, and possession of marijuana with intent to sell or distribute. Uh, he will also face uh, eight additional charges of providing drugs to an inmate. And these offenses uh, allegedly took place um, back in uh, May about the same time that Bullock <laughs> quit his job. And <laughs> here's a twist. The inmate who, uh, who uh, Timothy Bullock provided the drugs and weapon to, he was also arrested. I, 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 guess, you, I guess you can get arrested in jail. I mean, <laughs> sounds a little redundant to me. Um, but uh, the, uh, the inmate, he was, he was arrested as well. So... Uh, Bullock was jailed on a 100,000 secured bond. So uh, it will be interesting to, uh, to follow that case and we'll, we'll see how it, uh, how it uh, pans out. But it's, 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 it's amazing, you know, just another instance of showing where uh, 
if we can't if we can't keep drugs out of our fucking federal prisons, you know, admittedly the most or supposedly the most secure uh, institutions in the land, if we can't keep uh, drugs and weapons out of our prison, how in the name of whatever is fucking holy can we say with a straight face that we can keep them off of off of our streets? Now this is the same uh, federal uh, prison system where we intend to put uh, Sheikh Mo, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and those other five idiots uh, in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, we're going to put them into uh, these secure and, and not to worry uh, federal institutions. Uh, can't keep guns out, can't keep the drugs out, but uh, we can uh, we can certainly take care of all of the. Uh, uh, the terrorists in these federal prisons. Now we have another. We're going to go from Raleigh, North Carolina. We're going to keep moving up the eastern seaboard and go to uh, Newark, New Jersey, where a New Jersey state trooper was indicted on heroin possession charges. <laughs> Cops on heroin. I uh, like it a lot. Uh, trooper Jason Hanrahan. Oh. Trooper Jason Hanrahan. Uh, he'd been arrested back in uh, January after he was observed buying heroin from a uh, from another Newark man who uh, who also had been indicted. But Hanrahan uh, was allegedly in possession of less than half ounce, less than a half ounce of heroin. Now, goddamn it, a half ounce of heroin. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a shitload of heroin. But. Um, Anyway, he was found to be in possession of less than half an ounce uh, when he was detained. Uh, it said, you know, Hanrahan was not charged with a drug trafficking or intent or conspiracy charge. A half ounce of heroin is much, much more than you know, the typical personal dose. Uh, and since New Jersey law separates heroin possession offenses by weight, and less than half an ounce is the offense for which small-time possessors are charged, a half an ounce of fucking heroin is considered personal use. <laughs> okay, um, because of that, uh, because of New Jersey law, Hanrahan uh, was only popped with, uh, with a personal dose or two. If less than a half an ounce uh, equals less than, a, less than a dose or two, Hanrahan had the biggest fucking monkey on his back that I have ever seen. Um, anyway, uh, Hanrahan says he doesn't belong in the corrupt cop crowd. Okay, he's just another user who get caught. Um, either way, uh, Officer Han or former Officer Hanrahan is looking it up to five years in prison and a fifteen thousand dollar fine. Now you take the average junkie on the street that gets caught with around a half an ounce of heroin. If you think he's only going to get five years and a fifteen thousand dollar fine, uh, you've got another thing coming. So even when we do, even when we do um, arrest these uh, cops on drugs, uh, the leniency shown to them uh, is an embarrassment. And uh, it just goes to show that even, even though when the police do arrest their own, they continue to uh, give them uh, uh, greater consideration than the, than the average uh, drug user on the street. So there we have it, um, another, another night inside the opium den. I, I hope you found it uh, as enjoyable to listen to as I did to 
spouted off. And uh, again, I want to thank everyone who sent Bahama a little karma her way today uh, with regards to her uh, to her little surgical procedure. It's, well, it wasn't a little surgical procedure. Like I said, you should, you should see her ear. <laughs> More stitches than a catcher's mitt. But uh, she's doing well. I'm happy and relieved. And uh, life is good. So again, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in tonight, and uh, I hope to have you all tune in again uh, next Thursday. Oh, one 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 thing I want to add before I before I sign off here: uh, go to the Opium Den and archives and listen to the uh, the two re- most recent interviews. One is with Tom Angel, who is the media relations director for Leap, and the other one was is with Michael uh, Micah Daigle. And Micah is the uh, executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Both of these young men are very bright and very dedicated, and they and they represent the the uh, the up and coming leadership in drug policy reform. And I think you'll find what they have to say uh, quite interesting. You can also download uh, our shows. The Opium Den is on iTunes, so subscribe to uh, the Opium Den and you'll automatically uh, receive a download of the show into your iTunes account, and you can, you can listen to us that way. So again, check out, uh, check out archives. There's a lot of really good interviews in there. But uh, the, last, the last two uh, real good ones were with Micah Daigle and uh, Tom Angel. And I spoke last week uh, on, on the, uh, the National Geographic special, Inside LSD, and I, again, recommend everyone... Uh, download it and watch it. You can go to the Nat Geo website and they'll give you uh, either a direct download or links to that. But one of the interesting characters, I don't want to call him that character, but one of the interesting individuals in that documentary was a, was a doctor by the name of Dave Nichols. And Dave is uh, up at Purdue University and he is one of the handful, less than a handful of individuals in the United States that the DEA allows to manufacture LSD for uh, testing purposes. And uh, Dr. Dave, I contacted him after the show, and Dr. Dave will be appearing as a guest here inside the Opium Den uh, after the first of the year. He had a pretty busy schedule for the balance of the year, but uh, said that he would be very, very happy to, to come inside the Opium Den and talk about his very important work with LSD. So there we have it, another, uh, another episode of The Opium Den. In the can, as they like to say in the business. And again, I want to thank everyone for uh, tuning in tonight and uh, listening to uh, me babble on for 56 minutes. And as we do every week, every Thursday night, we'd like to close out the show with the, uh, with the Opium Den motto. And that is when good people obey a bad law, bad law never changes. Good night.